The information provided on this podcast is not legal advice and is intended for the sole purpose of providing education and legal information. Laws change over time, and the information provided on this podcast may not be up to date. We make no warranty, express or implied, regarding the information provided by our team or our guests on this podcast. The information should not be construed as legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship with us or any of our guests on the podcast. If you would like to consult with an attorney, please call 1-800-VICTIMS. That's 1-800-842-8467 for attorney referral contact information. This podcast provides a platform for the exchange of ideas and information to help educate crime victims on their rights. Some content will include topics and materials that may involve descriptions of violence or assaults, which can be distressing to victims and survivors. It may also impact service providers experiencing vicarious trauma. Podcasting from the Victims of Crime Resource Center, this is Knowledge is Power, Victim to Survivor, a podcast series where we help crime victims understand their rights so they can go from victims to survivors. On this episode, we'll discuss a victim's rights in the criminal justice system and services that are available for victims of crime. Welcome in, everyone. It's me again, your humble host, Nima Malavi, with the Victim of Crime Resource Center. And today, it's my pleasure to welcome Meg Garvin into the podcast. Meg is the executive director at the National Crime Victim Law Institute at the Lewis and Clark Law School. Meg, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to come on the podcast. I am happy to join you. I'd like to start our discussion with, um, with the NCVLI itself, the National Crime Victim Law Institute. Can you please tell us a little bit about it and your mission? Sure. The National Crime Victim Law Institute is a nonprofit based in Portland, Oregon, and we partner with Lewis and Clark Law School. We were founded in the year 2000 with the idea that criminal justice is really challenging for survivors of crime and often results in their re-victimization. And so the idea of our institute was, what happens if you give a survivor their own lawyer in the mix? If you give them a lawyer to help them understand their rights in the process and ensure that as they're, being, as they're navigating criminal justice, that they are being treated as a human being and that they have some notion of agency and autonomy over their own story. So our mission is to really ensure that survivors' voices resonate in criminal justice, and we do that by pairing survivors with no-cost legal services to protect their rights and ensure that they have a meaningful participation uh, throughout the process. And historically speaking, what was the role of a crime victim in the criminal process? Yeah, you, you know, it's so interesting, um, that question, because right, history is a, has a long tail, right? There's mm-hmm. a lot of history. So, you know, um, the, at the colonial founding of the United States, victims had a really prominent role in criminal justice. In fact, they were in the well of the court um, on most situations, asking for the court uh, to help make them whole again. They they got to participate. They got to present evidence. They were really intimately involved in crafting of justice. And then as our cities grew, as our population grew, as we started to have notions of public harm from crime, um, we had the rise of the Office of Public Prosecutor. And as that office rose, for very good reasons, um, victims started to kind of take a, a backseat role in, in justice. And that, that backseat role kept moving further and further back, such that by like the 1970s in the United States, victims were really much more seen as a piece of evidence in the case, a witness to their own victimization. So, um, but none of that was overnight, right? There was this, part of our history where victims were really involved, and then it was a gradual erosion of that central role 
to a place where they became completely peripheral and completely excluded. And then since the late 70s and early 80s, the victims' rights movement has been saying, okay, let's bring them back in. Let's give them a role again, not going back to where they were the prosecutor, but let's make sure that they have a meaningful role in criminal justice and that, that it is um, at times of equal weight as the other participants. So it really depends where in history you're asking about what their role was. Um, but I think it's incredibly important to remember that at our colonization, at that moment of our history, when the U.S. Constitution was ratified um, post-colonization, that victims had a central role. And, and victims' rights are saying, let's just bring them back in. I see. So you, you talked about the uh, sort of the origins of the, of the country and, and victims, a victim's role there. Uh, how different is a victim's role today uh, in the criminal justice system? Yeah. Um, another kind of interesting moment. It really depends a little bit about like where you are in the country because mm. each jurisdiction has such different rights. So um, coming out of the 1970s and early 80s, as jurisdictions started to to analyze what's happening to victims in criminal justice, different places started to pass different rights. Um, lots of jurisdictions, lots of states tilted at passing a constitutional amendment, many times um, statutes, actually all passed statutes. And all of those were designed to say, oh, you know, let's, let's invite the victim back in. Let's have them have a role. Um, but today, the question is, like, how um, much weight is given to those rights? How much have those rights that were passed into law in the 80s and 90s, and even early 2000s, how much have they changed the cultural reality that excluded victims? And that varies by jurisdiction. In some jurisdictions, victims' rights are afforded, um, and victims do have a meaningful role in the criminal justice system. The majority of places, though, victims' rights are still pretty new in terms of how we practice and our, how we practice in the courtroom, how we practice in preparing for cases. So victims are still very often, um, while they're not excluded from the criminal justice system, they also aren't necessarily seen as like a critical participant at every turn. So it's changing, it's evolving, but we are still coming out of that 1970s exclusion model. Hmm. Let's talk about maybe some of those rights. Is a victim free to choose whether he or she would like to participate in the criminal justice process? That is a super interesting question. Um, because right, it, it all turns on a couple of words in the question. So choose and then to participate. <laughs> right? So you know, if someone reports my victimization on me, so if I'm a victim of crime and you observe it and you mm -hmm. report it, I have no choice in that matter. And law enforcement will likely come investigate um, and ask me questions and potentially ask other people questions. And then they refer the case to prosecution. So you didn't have a choice in that first moment. Mm -hmm. if, if you didn't observe it, I may have a choice to report it or not. Um, once reporting has happened, I don't have choice over every moment, but this is right to say I get choices over some moments. Mm. So do I have a choice to participate? Well, I probably have a choice of whether to be present in the courtroom and observe things if I haven't yet been called as a witness. So I have that choice. If someone has already subpoenaed me as a witness, I don't have a choice. So that's actually a really complex question. Uh, and I think one of the most important things about victims' rights is 
what we know about kind of recovery from victimization, or at least moving from victim to survivor to even hopefully thriver, is that the more opportunities we give for choice along the way, the better off a survivor will be. The more we return agency, autonomy, um, the more uh, survivors can build resilience and move through all of this. So while we don't, victims don't have the total choice of whether to participate or not, um, the more we can give them some choices along the way, the better. Although we're located in California, it often helps to look at best practices from other states. Do other states have stronger victims' rights amendments um, and legislation compared to California? Well, uh, California has amazing rights, and um, your organization is one of the best in the country in terms of looking at those rights and trying to do something with them. Uh, California passed Marcy's Law, which was the start of the most recent evolution of victims' rights in 2008. That said, every jurisdiction has some strengths and some areas where they could improve when you look at their laws. So... If we're, if we're doing a straight comparison to California, California is one of the top in the country. But, or and, when you're analyzing, when we're trying to figure out, like, where are the gaps or where could we be even better, we're always looking at, is there anything in the language that is permissive um, language? Meaning someone in the system other than the victim has discretion. Hmm. If that's the case, that law is not as strong as it could be, right? So if it says... Um, the victim may be present uh, so long as something. Uh, then you've built in a lot of discretion and a lot of test, right? And so that's not as strong. And you always want to look at, is there explicit standing, both at the trial court level and appellate court level? California has that. So you guys are incredibly strong, um, meaning can the victim get into court and do something? You then also want to look at remedies. And one of the things I really want folks to understand is when you're analyzing are there remedies for a violation of a victim's right, you aren't looking for, is the law explicit about positive remedies? Like, does it say, if this right is violated, you get X? Because that's really rare. And in fact, if a law is explicit about remedies, sometimes that means that's the only remedy you can get. Instead, when you're analyzing the strength of your law, it's really useful to look to see, are there any remedies that are prohibited? If there's a remedy that's prohibited, you want to then analyze how restrictive is that. So in California, you have a lot of leeway in the remedies that you ask for. So if we're doing kind of a national analysis, California law is really one of the top in the country, um, including right now Marcy's law in your state constitution, also the standalone privacy right in your constitution that isn't specifically labeled victims' rights. But you have a lot of really good things. So then you'd want to start to look at are there are there statutes that maybe have permissive language or give discretion somewhere or uh, or and or do you have any statutes that afford protection to just one class of victims? And that's something that I do think California, as well as many other jurisdictions, can look at. Did you give a ton of rights to sexual assault survivors? They probably need those rights, but my guess is other survivors also need them. So do you have stronger privacy rights for sexual assault victims than you do other victims? That's probably an area of improvement. Do you allow for different financial recovery 
for sexual assault victims. In California, there's some opportunities for uh, additional recovery for victims of sexual violence. Maybe those should be extended to other victims. So you have an incredibly strong law in California, mm. but all of us can keep improving, uh, and those would be the areas I'd look at. Can you talk about some of the bigger barriers uh, when it comes to in- enforcement of a victim's rights? Uh, probably, probably the top barrier from my perspective and from NCBLI's work around the country is access to legal services. It is really hard for a survivor to ask for or assert their rights themselves, and then if they're told no, to kind of fight that. Hmm. So we know we know from defendants, right, and we know from pro se litigants at all, whether it's a pro se defendant um, or in some jurisdictions that's called a pro per, when you're self-representing, if you're a defendant or if you're in a family law getting a divorce or custody moment, we know you fare lots well when you don't have a lawyer. The same is true for victims' rights and rights enforcement. If you don't have a lawyer, your, the likelihood of enforcement of your rights goes down. So I think that's probably the largest hurdle. And coupled with that is probably just a cultural hurdle of people are still confused by victims' rights. They're confused by why a victim would need a lawyer. They're very suspicious of it. Um, so I think it's kind of a combination of access to legal services and then this cultural hurdle of why do you need a lawyer? Why do you have rights? Isn't this just about the state versus defendant? So it's, it's probably a combination of those things. I see. How do you recommend that victims and organizations serving victims get buy-in from other system players who may not want victims' rights to have such a strong role in the criminal justice system? Yeah, this question, you have just nailed, like, change, like, the nail on the head, right? Like, you have just, this is so challenging. Uh, and, and I would actually turn the question back to you guys, because I know you have this you know, um, organization, the students there, it is hard collaboration. And I think that's one of the most challenging moments of all of this is because when you're trying to create collaborations, you're running up against that cultural hurdle. Um, I, I think you know, the, one of the analogies that NCBLI uses a lot is uh, criminal justice actors, like whether it's law enforcement, prosecutor, judge, even like when you're, when you, in a, your daily life are working in the criminal justice system, you know, it's kind of like a, a six lane highway, three lanes going each direction. Right. Mm-hmm. And when you, when your entire life is as a professional is in the criminal justice system, you're in that left lane going super duper fast. Right. Like you just know what you need to exit for 25 miles. So why the heck would you be in the right lane? You don't even have to read the the signs anymore. You know where the mileage the markers change, right? You know when you can be going 55 versus 65. Like you're doing, right? That's criminal justice. And victims are are like over in the right lane. They never want to be on the highway in the first place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they want to get the heck off of it because they want to get back to their ordinary life. And so they're way over there. So if we're trying to create buy-in, right, from the folks in the left lane, we want them to understand that if we empower survivors, if you understand trauma, if you understand um, what it takes for a survivor to want to be in the system is to give them some voice and choice and control, that will move them into the middle lane, then you might get buy-in. So the question becomes to the people in the left lane, what could we possibly do to get survivors from the right lane to the middle lane? If you try to force them over, they're going to take an exit. If what you do is give them some choices, if you treat them with dignity and respect, they're going to get in the middle lane, and then you have a better chance, a much better chance 
of getting a successful conviction. And I think that if we're talking about other criminal justice professionals, that's a way to get buy-in is to appeal to those things that are core to their job, which is a just investigation and prosecution. The only way you get that is if the victim gets the middle lane. Um, if we're talking about nonprofits and getting, you know, NGOs and getting their buy-in, right, that, that should be easier because it's about victim agency and autonomy. And all of us that work with survivors really want to return power to them. But I do think criminal justice folks are challenging um, because it's a culture change. But that would be where I would go. I do think that you guys develop collaborations so beautifully throughout Sacramento and the entire, entire state. And in fact, um, across the country, you guys have good relationships. So in many ways, I think your own answer to that question would be super useful. I see. It's a very interesting analogy you used. Some feel that victim participation in the criminal justice system causes an administrative burden and it clogs up an already burdened system. What value do you feel that victim participation has for the system? Yeah, I think it's pretty much everything. And what I mean by that is if, if survivors don't see themselves in the criminal justice system, if they don't see it as a place where they're going to be listened to and their needs partially met, they're going to turn away from it. And then, and then the system's going to be dysfunctional because we'll never be able to get at those persons or behaviors that society says are criminal, are, are not us, right? That are things that we need to rehabilitate or correct. We'll never get at that because if survivors don't report crime they drop out of a case, then then we simply just won't have a good justice system. And so the benefit of having victims in the mix is that the system actually does what it's supposed to do. Uh, the drawbacks are, yes, administrative challenges. There's no, there's no way that you can talk about victims' rights without acknowledging that it takes time to notify victims. It takes time to allow them the space um, to be ready sometimes to participate. It takes time to coordinate with one more schedule, right? The schedule a hearing that factors the defense, the prosecution, the judge, and the victim. That can be challenging. Uh, but to not do it is to risk the victim turning away from the system altogether, and then we just have dysfunction. So those administrative burdens or um, administrative challenges or whatever, however you want to say it, those are worth it. Those are worth it because what we have been are folks who have faith in the system and see it as a place to turn. And that means it will be able to function as it was intended to, to build our communities better, stronger, and having more faith in each other. Uh, so, you know, I, I wouldn't label them as burdens. I wouldn't made, label them challenges. I would just say that we have to do our business differently if we're going to honor victims. And that's okay. So, Meg, if, if our audience has more questions about victims' rights um, in general, uh, how would they go about uh, looking into what those rights are and, and what is the value in doing so? So, NCBLI's website, which is um, ncbli.org, so National Crime Victim Law Institute.org, certainly has kind of the national landscape of rights uh, listed on it. And I'd encourage folks to go there. They can find their rights or at least some level, some explanation of their rights, as well as some educational materials. I know your um, uh, website has beautiful stuff on it. And, 
And what's the value of that or the importance of that? It's really the foundation of the entire conversation. What we need our communities to do is to get to know their own rights. We need people asking for and, in fact, demanding their rights. And the starting point of that is no one, right? There is little that can be done. Uh, to protect your rights if you don't ask for them. So the starting point really is know them. Know them as well as you know your rights if you are a defendant. And that means go do some research, talk to people, get on the website, and just know them. Uh, that's Knowledge is power, and when it comes to victims' rights, that's absolutely critical. Meg, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your expertise on victims' rights. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. This is great fun. Now that you've heard the show, please take a moment to rate and review it. And if you have any questions about any of the information you heard today, you can reach the Victims of Crime Resource Center at 1-800-842-8467. Or you can reach us online at 1-800-VICTIMS.org or Facebook at Victims of Crime Resource Center or Twitter at 1-800-VICTIMS. If you haven't had a chance, please take a look at some of the other episodes in our series. Thanks for listening.